First of all, welcome to everybody. It's so exciting to, to return. I'm excited that this time we got to just start in here so that way we don't have to have the balagan that we had that we had last week. My name is Chaim Angel. I'm the rabbinic scholar here at KJ and also the national scholar for the, of the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. At some point down the line, I'll make another housekeeping announcement that if you were not here last week and have not yet given me your name and email address for this list, just that way, make sure to do it before you leave tonight, so I can send out reminders such as, hey, we're in the chapel. And hey, somebody figured out how to make the air conditioning less. Or I don't know if I'll ever, or, or, or whatever, whatever those things are going to be. Does everybody have source sheets, by the way? Because they always come in handy. There are many sources tonight. We're going to start with the last page. Outline of the book of Joshua. Come on in, and again, Ben, you're doing a good job pouncing over there? Good, excellent, excellent. Thank you. The book of Joshua is divided into 24 chapters. With all the introductory remarks that I made, I don't think I commented on the fact that chapter numbers themselves are also a medieval Christian invention. There's no religious significance. I don't know if there is for Christians, but there certainly is not for Jews. We simply adopted it in the good old days because it was a handy way of debating Christians on a very unfriendly turf, which was a very scary and sad part among many of the medieval period. But it also is just a handy reference. If I want, I can walk into a room and say, okay, everybody, turn to chapter 3, verse 4. And in our printed text, we could do that, as opposed to turn to these words, and if you know it by heart, you're in excellent shape. And if you don't, well, then it becomes a little uh, clumsier. So we've adopted them, and they've become convenient. But when I talk about chapter breaks, there is absolutely no significance other than comes in handy, you can agree with the breaks, you can disagree with the breaks, I don't always understand why the breaks happen the way that they did, but that's, that's where they come from. The book of Joshua really has, has, at least according to my outline here, so I'll trust it for the time being, so that there's not too much inconsistency, there are four main sections. Joshua begins, Joshua is, is Moses' successor, right after Moses dies, the curtain, curtains open up, Joshua, who has been Moses' disciple for the last 40 years, now assumes the helm. He is ballpark, although we don't know for sure, 70 or 80 years old by now when he starts leading. Very similar to Moses, who was 80. And he immediately starts setting up the store, getting ready to cross the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. Which he does, he sends spies in chapter 2. Chapters 3 and 4 involve the crossing of the Jordan. This is all here on on the pages, I'm just giving you the, the bird's eye view of the book. Chapter 5, after they've crossed the Jordan, is every Mohel's dream. Because 40 years worth of men who were uncircumcised through 40 years in the wilderness suddenly needed to be circumcised. And so there was a massive circumcision ceremony involving, presumably, hundreds of thousands of men. It's incredible when you think about it, and, and that's what they went ahead and did. And, so, and that made them covenant-worthy once again. They brought the Passover sacrifice, and that is the first part of the book, where they cross, prepare to cross and cross into the land. The next part of the book, from chapter 6 through 12, I hope I'm consistent with what I wrote, is the conquest of the land, which you see specific battles against Jericho in 6, and this town called the Eye in chapter 7, then some more of that in chapter 8, there's a little altar ceremony at the end of 8, then they move on to this strange treaty with a group called the Givonim, or the Gibeonites, who pretended to be out-of-towners because they did not want to be perceived as Canaanites, because then they might be killed, and they made a false treaty with Joshua, but Joshua honored it. After, the, after they figured out, hey, wait a minute, you're not out of town at all. Chapter 10 is the battle against the Southern Coalition, various cities. And just as a bonus, because we're not going through the text at all, chapter 10 is the very first time in the entire Bible that the word Jerusalem appears. Fascinating. It appears zero times in the whole Torah. You'd never have guessed, given that it's by far the most important city once King David makes Jerusalem into Jerusalem a couple, you know many centuries later. But chapter 10 is actually the very first time that the word Jerusalem appears. There might be previous references in the Torah to stories that we identify with Jerusalem, but the word Jerusalem is not there. Then Joshua defeats that southern coalition. Chapter 11 is defeat of the northern coalition. Chapter 12 is kind of like a victory song, where it just rattles off the the towns, 31 towns, that Joshua defeated with their kings, the end. That's the end of the conquest. Okay, now that they've conquered the land, Now comes the distribution part of the book. From chapters 13 through 22, Joshua draws a map, and he says, okay, you tribe over there, you're going to go to that spot, and here are the cities that border your territory. This tribe over here, you go there. 
And from here on in, after they go, your job is to continue to dispossess the remaining Canaanites, because they certainly left many, many, many Canaanites behind. It's not that Joshua came in with this lightning conquest and defeated everybody. And that gets us through chapter 19 to some degree. Chapter 20 are the cities of refuge for people who are guilty of manslaughter. There were cities that the Torah mandated to make that happen. Chapter 21, you have Levite cities. And finally, chapter 22, Joshua tells the East Bank tribes of Reuven, God, and half of Menasheh, okay, guys, you fulfilled your covenant. You can go home in peace. He blesses them. They build an altar. There's almost a civil war, literally, over this altar. Thank God they settled, set things straight. Nobody gets killed. That's good. And then chapters 23 and 24, the final section of the book, are two covenants that Joshua makes with the people. Now, so that's the, that's the book. Okay, so I, I achieved my goal of the survey course to rattle off what the whole book is about in five minutes or less. I'm going to keep trying to do this, by the way, as a project for some of the books, but I, I, will, I will continue to try to do that as we go along. The book collectively does two big things. One is that there is a very clear succession from Moses, the person, to Joshua, the person. And there are an awful lot of parallels, meaning it's a little spooky, but that was the point. The book of Joshua very clearly wants us to feel Joshua is just like his master. I mean, to a crazy degree. He even has to remove his shoes when he has an angelic vision, just like Moses does. Everything is carbon copy just about what happened with Moses, except it's always just a tad difference, different, and those differences make a world of difference. And actually, when going through the book more in depth, that's a really fun thing to do, to go through the various parallels and differences between Moses and Joshua, how they are similar, how they are different. That's one transitional thing that is taking place. Again, there are source pages that everybody should have. I know that Ben has been working very hard to make that happen. Albert, since you're sitting in another strategic location, I'm going to give you a little stack of people who make it to that side of the room. Thank you. Welcome, Kenny. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What year did they cross the Jordan? Ballpark, uh, 1200 BCE, just to give you a number of the general vicinity of, of everything. But again, ballpark, give or take 100 years or, or more, but, but that neck of the woods chronologically. There's some scholars debate some of it rides on when the exodus happened, because this is 40 years after that, right? So there's some debate in scholarly literature. The most popular view still is that the Israelites left Egypt in 1250-ish range, so that would bring us to about 1200-ish now, give or take. Okay, the other transition is between the Torah, the book, or the five books really, and the book of Joshua. All the books that come after the Torah, and that goes back to what we spoke about a bit last week in terms of how the Torah occupies the unique role in the Bible. It's the center of it all. And then the book of Joshua is the very first book where the goal of the prophet is always, as we discussed last time, to uphold the Torah. And Israel's history is judged based on how well they're doing that. So the book of Joshua is the very first book, because it comes right after the Torah, that sets up that goal. No new laws are being added. The whole point is, are we faithful to the Torah or not? If we are, great, things are going to go well. And if we don't, well, things are not going to go as well. Which brings up, to me, the most amazing thing of all. How would you characterize the Israelites in the 40 years of the desert? If you ask Moshe Rabbeinu on some interview, toward the end of his life, when he's going on a book tour of his autobiography, right? And you say... Moshe, tell me the truth. What was it like leading the Israelites for the last 40 years? Okay, so what would he answer, yeah? They complain, and they rebel, and they're faithless, and they're stiff-necked. Anything else? I think we're, we're hitting all the bases here, right? All right, so now some of those really stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious people have died. Right? So they're not there to bother Joshua. But what's crazy, here's a good statistic for you, is that in the entire book, there is one sin by one guy. It's in chapter 7, if you want to look for the dirt in the book. Right? In the book of Joshua, chapter 7, the only guy that you will find who sins is a man named Achan. At I? At I. Very good, Megan. You're, 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 the gears are turning early and fast and good. So that's, all, that's all great. In the city called the I. The I, by the way, I'm going to keep calling it the I, as opposed to I, because I just means ruin. And it was named that because Joshua defeated the city and, well, destroyed it. So it became known as the Ruin. But it wasn't the original town name. I don't know the original town name. So anyway, Achan plundered from Jericho, and Joshua had made a ban against doing so. Nobody knew about that, so far as we can tell. He plundered. Israel lost the battle against the Ai as a result of that. That's the only sin. 
And there's only one time that the Israelites complain in the whole book. It's amazing. The same group of kvetch, stiff-necked, crazy, dry, poor Moshe Rabbeinu, crazy. He really gave, they gave him a run for his money. We all know that. Joshua is just cruising along. The only time that they complain, and it's not even to him, they complain to some elders. After the elders strike a treaty with the Gibeonites in chapter 9, and the Israelites find out, hey, wait a second, they're in-towners, they're Canaanites, we need to go to war against them. And the elders say, sorry, no, we can't, we, made a sw- we swore, we made an oath, we cannot backtrack from our oath. So then the people grumble about that. They don't even grumble to Joshua. So a question that's always occupied me is, how did that happen? The same people. And Joshua is a lesser leader, because everybody is a lesser leader than Moses. How could it be that an entire generation is so righteous? And the summary verse, all the way at the end of the book, says it very well. It's source number one over here. Again, we all have sources. Wow, this is great. Thank you to all of you who are doing such an effective job at distribution. This is terrific. Source number one. Israel served the Lord during the lifetime of Joshua and the lifetime of the elders who lived on after Joshua and who had experienced all the deeds that the Lord had wrought for Israel. What a happy ending. In fact, had this been the last book of the Bible, A, our course would suddenly be short. Right? (laughs) It's the only book I get to survey. Right? So that would be sad. I mean, it would be happy because this would have been a happily ever after to the Bible, the end. Okay, the patriarchal covenant is fulfilled. The people have their promised land. The people are righteous dwelling in their land. Moses got them across. They're faithful to the Torah. Basically, all the stuff that we would want all the time happened. And had the, book stop, had the Bible stopped there, we would have had, this would have been our happily ever after, the end. Last, things didn't remain perfect for long. Just you wait till we get to the book of Judges, and I'm going to have a very different point of view on the whole world because, well, it's a lot bleaker. Yes, sorry. You're right. You're right. The first generation is all dead, right? But the second generation still was responsible for this Baal Peor worship with prostitution in the 40th year. Reuven and God gave Moshe a little bit of a hard time with the whole sheep thing. The Wap the Rock story takes place in the 40th year. They're, they complain about the man. There's some fiery serpents over there. It's not all rosy. So even the new generation, those people who will enter the land, haven't necessarily changed fundamentally. You're, fun- you're correct that many of the complainers are no longer with us. Yeah, okay, last thing. Well, right. basically what you're saying is, when you say the same people, is that he's looking at the people in the aggregate, which will carry on the same characteristics that it has had all along. You know, not necessarily any one individual, whether he or she is there or not there. It's the group characteristics that very good. But, but, but in fact, the real people actually are known to be complainers also. So I'm curious about the secret to the success of Joshua. I'm very curious about this. I've always been curious yeah. about it because to, to me, it's, a, it's an amazing phenomenon. So we'll start by tracing through Joshua in the Torah. That's a lot of what's going to happen this evening. Just getting to a sense of where he comes from. And then a couple of really awesome rabbinic insights that kind of weave it all together very, very nicely along the way. Source number two. The very first time we meet Joshua is in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, where the nation of Amalek comes and attacks. It's literally the first act of terrorism in the Bible. They specifically went after civilians. They didn't attack the army. Right? That's the way the Torah depicts the Amalekite attack. They snuck around to the back and were getting the stragglers rather than just picking a fair fight. So to speak. So it was literally the first act of terrorism and the Torah is very hostile toward Amalek for that very reason. I'm sorry that there's so much relevance to that last sentence, but be that as it may, Amalek still becomes the first terrorist nation in history. Moses said to Joshua, pick some men for us and go out and do battle with Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. This is how Joshua is introduced. So who is he? I don't know. I mean, maybe I know, but, but I don't know from here. The very first time the Torah introduces him, He's just a known figure, right? Evidently, Moses knew who to go to. We find out soon enough who he is. What tribe is he from, by the way? This we do find out, not here. Here we don't find out anything. But, but we do find out from the Torah what tribe he is from. And that tribe is Ephraim, which is the, the primary tribe of, jo- of the house of Joseph. He's the younger son, but he became the primary tribe. I know that because in the story of the spies, which is coming up, 
he was the delegate for the tribe of Ephraim. What's amazing, in source number two, uh, source number three, excuse me, all the way in the book of Chronicles, where it's just like there's a lot of name lists, which I've read very carefully, because it's not a riveting plot over here, right? It's not, but it's very important information. And one such important information is what we find out in source three. His son Ladan, his son Amihud, his son Elishama, his son Nun, his son Joshua. Okay, this is Joshua's pedigree. This is who he comes from. So Joshua, we know from the Torah, is Joshua, son of Nun. Here it's called Nun. Same thing, it's a variant. And Nun was the son of Elishama, and Elishama was the son of Amihud. Elishama, son of Amihud, appears in the Torah. Elishama, son of Amihud, was actually the prince of the tribe of Ephraim at the time of the Exodus. He was the number one man of the tribe. And therefore, one of the top 20 Israelites in terms of leadership roles. The Torah never lets us know this. In fact, we only find this out in Chronicles. So it turns out, Joshua has a ton of yichus. He's the grandson of a tribal leader of the second most important tribe of the people of Israel. Talk about protexia, right? And the Torah deliberately omits this information, and so does the book of Joshua, which I think is significant. I only know it's significant because of this verse, which is why I'm quoting it to you. Suddenly you realize that Moses didn't choose Joshua because it was a protexia thing or because it was the grandson of somebody important. Joshua earned his position because he was a great man. You actually learn that little tidbit from the silence of the Torah, and you only know it's being silent when you get to Chronicles. You're like, wow, the Torah didn't mention this. Incredible. That's why you've got to read those name lists in Chronicles. So we'll talk about that next May when we get to Chronicles, meaning not this coming May, just to make sure that is clear. Welcome, come on in. There are source sheets in various strategically deployed locations, and I got more. I got more. So, so you, can sit, you can sit there if you want, but make sure she ends up with source sheets. And that's all, that's all good. Okay, next. Getting back to our issue at hand, and we're in source two again. After Joshua defeats the Amalekites in verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Inscribe this in a document as a reminder, and read it aloud to Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God tells Moses to write down this war. For those of you who are, who are historians, this is the very first time in the whole Torah that writing is mentioned. Cool. But that's, that's just a bonus little tidbit that, you, that are fun to throw out every now and then, because, hey, who doesn't like bonus little tidbits? Um, but what matters more is what do you get out of this verse? You learn something amazing about Joshua the very first time that you meet him. He's literate. Not only is he literate, but you learn something way... Sorry for the tidbit. I didn't want to distract with it. There's something fundamental that you learn, that Moses has to write this down and instruct Joshua. Why is he instructing Joshua? He must be his second hand, his aide. Joshua's going to be the next leader. The very first time we meet him, we already are getting this foreshadowing that one day Joshua is going to be the leader of the people. And that's why Moses needs to instruct this to Joshua. It's amazing that this hint is already there. And again, I don't even know his father's name at this stage in the game. But what we find as we march through the Torah is that Joshua was a very important player. We jump down to source four now, which is what we are up to. Moses and his attendant Joshua arose and Moses ascended the mountain of God. So here we are, this is after the Ten Commandments. God has revealed the Mishpatim, the civil law, so to speak, even though there's a lot of religious and civil law in there. And now Moses is about to go up to Mount Sinai to receive, I don't know, more of the Torah. This is where he's going to end up being there for 40 days and 40 nights, as opposed to the Ten Commandments, which is a much shorter stint. There he goes up there, gets, you know, gets, gets the Ten Commandments, comes down, but he doesn't have tablets yet. This is where he's going to go up, get the tablets, and more of the Torah. So he's walking with his attendant, Joshua. Here's where we learn that Joshua is Moses' attendant. Up until now, he could have just been a very gifted general. But now we understand that he has more of a role to play over here. Well, what happened while Moshe was on the, Moses was on the top of Mount Sinai? Where's Joshua, if you just have to draw a map? He's faithfully waiting at the bottom of the mountain for his master. And who's running the show back in the camp? Aaron and... The third most important man in the whole time of the Exodus, who we know almost nothing about, this guy named Hur. Hur is the third most important man in the Israelite camp at, at the time of the Exodus. You have Moses, you have Aaron, you have Hur. And Hur fades fast. But at least when Moses goes up there, Joshua goes with him and waits at the bottom of the mountain. And Moses tells the people, if you have any problems while I'm gone, speak to Aaron and Hur. 
Well, then when they have a problem, Kaur is not on the set anymore, and in fact, he disappears, which is, leads to all kinds of wonderful stories, including the Midrash, that he opposed the golden calf, and he lost his life over that. He martyred himself in, in a battle against the golden calf. But all of this is outside of the Torah. What does happen is the Israelites build a golden calf. And God tells Moses, get on down there, we have a crisis, you have to do something. Source number five. So Moses is coming down, now carrying the Ten Commandments, the Luchot, the tablets of the, of the Ten Commandments. When Joshua heard the sound of the people in its boisterousness, that is a fabulous word, uh, he said to Moses, there is a cry of war in the camp. But he answered, Moses replied, it is not the sound of the tune of triumph or the sound of the tune of defeat. It is the sound of song that I hear. This is the very first time in the Torah that Joshua opens his mouth. And, what can you say about his comment? He's wrong. Right? The very first time he speaks, here he is, the leader in training, Moses' disciple and attendant. He's there, he's been listening to these sounds for a while. Moses, it's a war over there. Now, to be fair, Moses has privileged information. He knows from God that this isn't a war. He knows what's going down. But the way the Torah sets up the narrative, it throws in this bonus detail, Joshua's first words are mistaken. He speaks before his master, and he also makes a mistake in his judgment. You could argue that since he's a military man, everything sounds like a war to you, right? And as we all hear through our prisms, whatever our experience is. So in this case, Joshua, we know he's a fine general. So it might be that when he hears loud sounds, to him it sounds like another war. Be that as it may, he was mistaken. Okay. Your interpretation is a fabulous midrash in the whole situation. Joshua seems to think that it's a war, and Moses corrects him and says it's not a war. Then, Moses, we all know the rest of the story, right? Moses goes down to the people, he smashes the tablets, he grinds up the calf, he makes them drink it, mixes up with water, calls for a massacre, and Joshua is nowhere on the set. Right? It's not that Joshua is right there by his right side or left side or whatever side you want and then takes three steps back when the stones come crashing down because that can really hurt. But Joshua is off the set. He's not part of the rest of the story. We just get this one little exchange, which is fabulously interesting in terms of if we're now supposed to be paying attention to Joshua's development and all we get out of him in this story is he speaks up and is wrong. Curious. Okay. He's mentioned in source 6 at the aftermath of the golden calf where it says the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one man speaks to another and then he would return to the camp but his attendant Joshua son of Nun a youth would not stir out of the tent. There's this fabulous image of Joshua that he never left. You have Moses' tent where you can imagine this unbelievably spiritually nurturing atmosphere, where Moses receives prophecy, comes to the tent, and immediately shares it with Joshua. Talk about great spiritual line of fire. This is terrific. But it also means that on some level, he's not getting training with the people. Right? He is in the tent waiting for Moses to come back, and Moses is handling affairs alongside Aaron. Maybe Miriam plays a role, and in certain stories she really does. And then you have the judges' hierarchy, the whole bureaucracy that is set up, and Joshua is extraneous to that. Joshua is a direct line of discipleness to Moses, but he's not leading the people. He doesn't even seem to be with Moses during most of the stories, and I think that that's something which is significant as we try to understand his leadership development. Yeah? Uh, I believe you said that uh, Joshua was maybe the same age or 10 years younger than Moshe. No, no, no. He's about 40 years younger than Moshe. He's the, he's the, he's the younger generation. By the way, it goes to show, he's a youth. A 40-year-old can be called a nar, a youth. Right? He doesn't have to be 21 years old to make, to make this work. Nar means he's an attendant. So if he's a 40-year-old attendant, great. That's totally fine. It has nothing to do with his physical age as much as, as, much as his, his role. Okay. The next... Sorry, yes. Is when... Hard to know. The usual way that the Torah portrays God's conveying information to Moses is via the ark, once the ark is built. 
that God is going to speak between the cherubs, because that's God's area. And Moses hears the voice. How that works is beyond all of us, including other prophets. We discussed that last week. But that seems to be the mode. Whether or not Moses is sitting in the tent, or whether he's just receiving prophecy because he hears God's voice. However that works. I don't know. But Joshua was always right near him. And it sounds like he gets the, he's almost always going to be the first one to hear, What did God say? What did God say? And Moses patiently and lovingly instructs Joshua, Here's the word of God. And now Joshua knows. Okay, yeah? Yes. Um, if, if we can go back to source five for a minute, I'm not sure how we understand the word on note as um, song, because all the other references to the coal, a note of rock, coal, a note of job. So, and then the other, the last one, which we interpreted as song, is just coal, a note. So, how is that song? This is all the JPS translation. Talk about me copying out of the whole thing. Right? I just block and paste. It's much easier. And, and when I have a real quibble, then I'll, I, I, do, I do take the time to struggle with it. Here, you're, you, you could well translate this word otherwise, like some kind of answering, if you yeah, like. Right. If that makes you happier, that's fine. I'm happier with what you just said also. I just don't think it impacts on where I need to go with the pure, which is why I didn't fuss. But, but, you're, but you're right. In other words, the JPS is one, we were talking, Michael and I were talking about it before the Shior, there's no one perfect translation, each one has its pros, each one has its cons, what I like about JPS is that it's so readable, and so that's why, that's why it's here. And just, just to take a little further, the implication though would be if we read it differently that it's not necessarily wrong. I'm not, sure that, I'm not sure that whether you call it answering or song, the issue is that Joshua believes that a war is going on, that Israelites are fighting other Israelites, or perhaps somebody else is attacking the Israelites, right? And Moses is like, no, 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 no. I hear a party, you know, of whatever variety you wish to imagine. But, but it's a different sound. Moses is correcting the whole war concept. I think that's what matters in, in the story more, yeah? Well, what I saw in the vision, uh, saw it as an answer, which I thought that word as well, why not antiphonal kind of singing? In other words, it's a back and forth response among individuals, can't tell you especially no. in the situation they were in. Can't, can't, I can't tell you no. I don't know what they sounded like. I just really am glad that I was not there. But that's all that, you know, I, it's hard to know the exact soundage. All I can tell you is that Joshua thinks it's a war. Moses corrects him. Okay, going over to source seven. The first time, the next time that Joshua appears in the Torah at all, it's all the way in the narratives in, in, in the book of Numbers, where what's happening here is that Moses has had it. He feels all alone. The people are grumbling for meat. Moses doesn't know how to handle this anymore. He turns to God and says, I've had it. Kill me. I quit. Take, take, take my life. I'm, I'm done. done with this. God says, look, I'll give the people the meat they want and then punish them for that down the road. And I'll give you 70 people who will prophesy in some form or another alongside you. There are different ways of understanding what exactly happened over here, but the bottom line is people begin to prophesy, and then there are two people who seem to be doing something different from the other 70, and their names were Eldad and Medad. Right? Nice little sounding names, although Eldad is the one who founded the car rental that you can yeah. use in Israel, and Medad, <laughs> if I rivaled him, that's the company that I would found, of course, but in the meantime, and I hope that some of my clients would get that, but in the meantime, but I would, I would I think it was a hoot, but in the meantime, <laughs> Eldad and Medad are prophesying, evidently, independently of the spirit of Moses, on some level or another, and Joshua gets nervous about this. So source 7, Joshua suddenly swings in, he's suddenly there, and he suddenly swings into action. Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' attendant from his youth, spoke up and said, My Lord Moses, restrain them. Your authority is jeopardized by these two individuals. They're prophesying independently. They're not part of your system. They have their own system. Moses, we have to stop this. And Moses, in one of the most gracious sentences ever said by anybody, well, what do you expect from Moses, right? But Moses said to him, are you wrought up on my account? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets? Halavai. The greatest mission that a prophet could ever have is not to be the boss. A prophet is trying to influence. Right? That's all prophets do. Prophets don't want to be the boss. Prophets want to influence their community so that they too will rise up and get closer to God. That's their whole goal. That's, and Moses says that. It's not about me. I wish everybody here were a prophet. That would be fantastic. Then we won. That means that everybody is close to God. That's what I'm trying to do. So Moses corrects Joshua. Oh, this is the second time that Joshua speaks in the whole Torah. And? 
He's wrong again. <laughs> it's amazing, right? It's, it's, it's remarkable, actually. So here's the man who's being groomed for leadership, and incidentally, there's nobody else on the, on the, on the radar. Nobody else is going to remotely come into this role. It's obvious to everybody, including us, that Joshua is going to succeed Moses one day. And the very first two times that he's spoken, he speaks incorrectly. So here the Midrash speaks up in source number eight. There were two statements of Joshua which Moses did not find favorable. One was regarding the appointment of elders, and the other was at the golden calf, meaning the stories that we've just read. Regarding the golden calf, Moses said, Joshua, who will one day lead 600,000 people, is unable to distinguish between different types of voices. This Midrash is expressing, you know, it's plugging it into Moses' mouth. But it's really expressing a rabbinic fear that you and I can share. Namely, we're reading this story, and you're right, it might be that there are many, many good things of judgment that Joshua has done that are not in the Torah. Right? He might have been batting 950, which is a very fine average by anybody's standard. And okay, the two stories that the Torah relates are the ones where he botched it. That could be. However, the Midrash is taking for granted that, oh, the Torah is signaling us something. Right? That if Joshua's first two comments are wrong, uh-oh, how is he going to lead the nation once Moses is gone? And that sets up the story of the spies. Source number nine. We know the story of the spies where Joshua, uh, Moses sends 12 spies at the behest of the people and of God to some degree. And Joshua is one of those 12 spies. He's the one from Ephraim, as we mentioned. And we all know the drill. How many good spies are there and how many bad spies are there? So we know there are 10 bad spies and two good spies. Who are the good ones? <coughs> Kalev and Yahushua. Right, I've told the story, I think even at KJ, but I'll tell it for those who missed it because I still, one of my great life regrets. And that is that I was not in a cab with a certain friend of mine. It really bugs me that I was not there, right? As much as I wouldn't want to be at the Golden Cap, I really wish I were in this taxi. So my friend gets into a cab in Yerushalayim and says, please take me to Rehov Yahushua bin Nun, which is in the German colony. It's a very nice area over there. Take me to Joshua Street. And so the driver, as per the per often, you know, we all may have had this experience at one time or another, starts going in the totally wrong direction. But of course, we all know, I don't know the street so well, you figure if the driver's going in the wrong direction, he probably knows a shortcut, and I'll thank him later. Right? Because what do I know? He's the driver, okay. But at some point it became evident to my friend, no, he doesn't know a shortcut, he's lost. So she finally just says, excuse me, sir, where are you taking me? So he says, well, where do you want to go? She says, I want to go to Rehov Yoshua Binun. And he said, I'm so sorry. I thought you said, take me to Rehov Kalev Ben Yifunet. <laughs> that is one of the finest moments in history. And I was not in that cab. Right? Isn't that great? First of all, talk about only in Israel, right? Like the, the, for the driver to make that kind of error is just, uh, I'm so pleased. So you're all right. The two good spies are Kalev and Yoshua. So you know the drill. They come back with their grapes and pomegranates and figs and all that kind of good stuff. And they start talking about well, how good the fruit is. But then the bad spies all say, but there are giants and there are great military machines and there are walls. And people start to get really antsy. And so Kalev speaks up in source nine. <coughs> Kalev hushed the people before Moses and said, let us by all means go up and we shall gain possession of it for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we cannot attack that people for it is stronger than we. All right, so how many good spies are there and how many bad spies are there? Ten and two, right? But what did I just read? Sorry, folks, read it again. It's one verses 11. Where's Joshua? Right? It sounds like Kalev is single-handedly taking on the bad guys and the men who were with him, it sounds like everybody else. Joshua is very blaringly silent here. And his silence is so loud, I, can't, I cannot believe it. Joshua, you're not crazy. Joshua does finally speak up after the people go on to totally panic and say, let's go back to Egypt. And they give up. And God is furious. This is where Joshua comes into play in source 10. Not that long later, but not initially. And that's very significant, right? Joshua, son of Nun, and Kalev, son of Yefuneh, of those who had scouted the land, rent their clothes. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into that land, a land that flows with milk and honey, and give it to us. And the whole community threatened to pelt them with stones. The presence of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. Here's where Joshua makes it. Now he's a good spy. But where in the world was he when the crisis hadn't started yet? Maybe two voices would have done better than one. Kalev is a powerhouse. Bless him. But where was he in chapter 13? He's remarkably silent. You could say, and maybe this is true, 
that he was silent because everybody in the world knew, oh, he's Moses' student. He has no credibility at all. Of course he's going to take the party line. Whereas Kalev, at least, was somebody different. Could be. But the sages of the Talmud have a different slant on the whole thing, which I find fascinating. So let's look at it. We find out in Source 11, in the spies' narrative, prior to their going to the land of Israel, those were the names of the men whom Moses sent to scout the land, but Moses changed the name of Hoshea, son of Nun, to Joshua. Here's where we find out, for the very first time, that Joshua wasn't always called that. At his brit milah, when his dad got up and thanked his wife, he better thank his wife, thanked his wife and thanked God, and people had to sit down before eating that one last mini muffin. Nun announced that the name would be Hoshea. Moses changed the name, here's where we find this out, even though he's always been known as Joshua to us. We never heard of Hoshea. And here's where we find out that there had been some name change. Where Moses changed the name to Yoshua, presumably because it was a master-disciple sort of thing to do. Just like Paro changed Joseph's name to Tzafinat Taneach. Right? In other words, you're my disciple, we're not equals here. And one of the prerogatives of the boss is to be able to rename the individual. From the Department of Very Important Statistics, Yehoshua, by getting this new name, might be the very first person in all Tanakh to have God's name, yud ke vav in it. So it's called a theophoric name. So you have people from, from the Exodus, you have a lot of Shaddai's are there, actually. Ami Shaddai, Tsuri Shaddai, Shaddai Ur. Shaddai was a commonly used divine name that made it into Israel's vocabulary of names. You also had El, Yisrael. That, that name also made it. But you have no clear examples of Yeho or the end of the name Yahu or Yah before Yehoshua's name change after the Exodus. The only possible candidate who might also qualify in this regard is Moshe's own mother, whose name is Yocheved, which might be short for Yehocheved. If it is short for Yehocheved, then she would have had the first one. Moshe's mother would have been the first, but that's far from clear that that's what her name definitely means. Yehoshua is the very first person who certainly has God's God's personal name involved in his name. So the Talmud picks up on all these weird things that we've been picking up on. Where was Joshua when Kaleb spoke up the first time? And why is his name change mentioned in this story? And so the Talmud here in Source 12 says something that I find truly remarkable. (coughs) Moses changed the name Hoshea, son of Nun, to Joshua, saying, May God save you from the wicked counsel of the bad spies. Ya Yoshiacha me'atzat meraglim. Now, the Talmud is projecting something into Moses' mouth that I can't believe. Does Moses trust his prized disciple so little that he's genuinely nervous that Joshua is going to go over to the dark side? Right? This Talmudic passage is projecting something onto Moses, right? You didn't have to read in. Yahushua does mean God save. It does mean that. But it doesn't have to be this prayer, may God save you from the terrible counsel that's going to happen. No reason to think that that's what's going on at all. What in the world does Moses, or let's ask the real question, what in the world do the rabbis who wrote this passage see that triggers such fear about Joshua? And I would argue what we've been discussing. First two times he spoke up, he made a mistake. Here we expected him to speak up, and he didn't. He wavered. The Talmud is picking up on that wavering. What was he wavering about? According to this Talmudic passage... He was just as scared as everybody else when he saw those giants and when he saw those walls and when he saw the armed forces of the Canaanites. Kalev was resolute. Kalev, when he saw them, he said, okay, God promised him, God's stronger than all of this. But Joshua saw the same thing that everybody else saw and first instinct was panic. And second instinct was, wait a minute, God promised. Which means, in this story, if you're keeping score, you have the Moseses and the Kalevs of the world who are resolutely on God's side. They're absolutely confident. If God promised this, it's going to happen. You have the ten spies who trigger what most of the nation seems to be at, which is they're terrified. And these are irreconcilable positions. And Joshua somehow is both of those things. Right? He's at one with the bad spies, and he's at one with Moses and Kalev at the same time. And this dichotomy that we've seen in how he's silent when Kalev speaks up first and then he speaks up alongside Kalev risking his life second that's important and I think the sages are really onto something big here yeah well I was thinking just as Moses when he first met God at the bush had his 
reservations and said, no, I don't want to go, I have a list, don't send me a loan. So does Joshua also make uh, these uh, fright, frightened uh, errors. It's a kind of a parallel. Very good. And we're going to get back to what you're saying in just a moment, yeah? Well, to me, it seems like he's a very human individual. Incredibly so. Moshe is like someone bigger than life. Incredibly so. And, and that's, in that sense, right. the fact that he makes two mistakes, isn't that part of the process of learning to be a leader? Yeah, yeah. And who's he going to learn that he's made a mistake from the others? Sure. No, from his... His yes. Spot on. And in right. fact, that drives yes. us to... Spot on. And that's, that's going to bring us to the next, well, the next source. And but. besides the fact that he could change his mind, it gave another indication of that he was... I don't want to say malleable, because that's the wrong word, but that he had within him that potential to be great, given the right mentoring, if all, you will. All, all spot on. And that, and that brings us exactly to this next source. Finally, we're in the 40th year of the desert... They've already done their wandering. Joshua is definitely going to be the next leader. We're all clear on that. And God tells Moses, okay, you're going to die. You're not going to lead the people into the land. And Moses' response is, but who's going to lead the people? Which I find amazing because we all know the answer to that. It's Joshua. There is no other, I mean, Kalev, yeah, he could have done it. But it's, it's all Joshua. It's been Joshua from minute one. And so who's going to lead them? So God responds. Verse 18, and the Lord answered Moses, Single out Joshua, son of Nun, an inspired man, and lay your hand upon him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before the whole community, and commission him in their sight. Invest him with some of your authority, so that, he, so that the whole Israelite community may obey. I'm very briefly going to give the... I always feel this important need to teach everybody how to use their thumbs. You know, guys in the Beit Midrash, when they study Talmud, and Baruch Hashem, now women also, very often use their thumbs when they study Talmud. You'll often see yeshiva students doing this, and most of them, frankly, look like clowns because they do not know how to use their thumb properly. There's a grammatically appropriate way to do this, and I'm not anal retentive, right? It's just, it's just a shtick, okay? But, but, but it's true. The Talmud always uses its thumb in the same way. And so I'm just going to teach you how it uses it, and then we'll all know, and, that's, and I try very hard to tell my yeshiva students this also. It's like, please, use your thumb, but use it wisely, right? But... Instead of just swinging it, or most of them just swing it around, they honestly don't know what they are doing. The Talmud always uses it this particular way. So let's look at verse 20 again in that source, 13. Where it says, invest him with some of your authority. Okay, so the way the Talmud will always read something like this is, invest him with some of your authority, thumb. Finish the sentence. But not all. Correct. That's how the Talmud reads biblical verses. And it's always with that thumb. They don't actually graphically depict the thumb in most editions, but you know that they're doing that, and they're doing it properly. Okay? Source 13, verse 20 again. So when it says, invest him with some of your authority, the Talmud will immediately pounce on that and say, but not all. And indeed, source number 14, using his thumb properly, does that. Invest him with some of your authority, but not all of your authority. The elders of that generation said, Moses' face is like the sun and Joshua is like the moon. Alas for such shame, alas for such reproach. Oh no, how is Joshua ever going to make it? Moses is the sun. Joshua, okay, the moon is still pretty nice. I'm a big fan of the moon myself. However, it's lesser. By the way, I actually asked a professor of Talmud this question. I didn't, I, I just don't know. Do the sages of the Talmud know that the moon reflects sunlight, or did they just think of it as a lesser light? In other words, what does this Talmudic passage mean? Right? Are they trying to say Joshua is just a lesser figure, or are they saying that he is a mere lesser reflection of Moses? So that professor who knows everything, or at least uh, very close to that mark, he, he, he thinks that the Talmud, the rabbis of the Talmud, did know that the uh, moon reflects sunlight, in which case then the meaning of the passage is that is a mere reflection of Moses. Now, this is actually, this passage captures what we've all been feeling all along, that Joshua is the right man for the job, there is nobody else, but how is he going to do it? And then, if you're not insecure enough yet, look at how, from the Department of Great Boldfaces down the line, verse 15, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' final discourse to the people, Joshua, son of Nun, who attends you, he shall enter it, imbue him with strength, Okay, so God says, encourage him, right? Source 16, God tells Moses again, give Joshua his instructions and imbue him with strength and courage. Okay, next source, 17 over here. Moses now calls Joshua in front of the whole people in source 17. Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and resolute. 
And then, later on in the same passage in Source 18, he charged Joshua, son of Nun, be strong and resolute. At some point, if you've got to keep on being told, be strong and resolute, odds are fairly high that you're not all that strong and you're not all that resolute, right? It's a, I'm, I'm getting so nervous hearing this, these words of encouragement. And if that's not enough, Moses dies, and the book of Joshua opens up with Source 19, where God speaks to Joshua. Be strong and resolute, for you shall apportion to this people the land that I have swore to their fathers and assigned to them. But you must be very strong and resolute to observe faithfully all the teaching that my servant Moses enjoined. And then you jump down to verse 9, which is two lines from the bottom of this paragraph. I charge you, be strong and resolute. Do not be terrified or dismayed. Three times in four verses, God manages to tell Joshua, don't worry, be strong, it's okay. So at this point, I'm quaking in my boots. How is he ever going to lead these people? It's really some of Moses' authority. And then, if that's not a kicker enough for you, so far we've seen God saying it, we've seen God commanding Moses to do it, and Moses doing it. All right. Then, in, in chapter 1 still, Joshua comes to the East Bank tribes, Reuven and God and half of Menasheh, and he tells them, okay, we have a deal, you've got to send troops. And they say, absolutely, we're in, we're going to send troops, and then source 20 over here. Any man who flouts your commands and does not obey every order you give him shall be put to death. Only be strong and resolute. The people are telling Joshua, their leader. Can you imagine anybody ever going to Moses and saying, be strong and resolute? I don't think so. Right? Never. What's, what's making this happen? It's incredible. How in the world is Joshua going to lead? And then, going back to the beginning of the Shi'ur, well, let's see. He brings the people across the Jordan. People all listen. There's no complaining. There's one man who sins once. Nobody fetches anywhere. This trembly, scared leader who is a shadow of his mentor. Just the moon. What in the world made him so successful? I'm expecting him to really, you know, if they were complaining to Moses, oh boy, wait until they find out what Joshua's like, they'll just walk all over him. It doesn't happen at all. And I think part of the reason for that is that Moses is the sun and Joshua is the moon. He's lesser, but that actually made him a much better leader. He was accessible. Right? Moses literally was like the sun. They couldn't even look at him in the face. Right? When he, he had the rays of light coming out of him, he, it was blinding. He had to wear a mask. He was so great that that created a distance with the people. Joshua was the moon. Okay, so he's lesser. He was not as great a person as Moses. He was certainly not as great a prophet. But somehow, the people understood, hey, he's one of us. He can reflect Moses' teachings and bring it to us in a way that doesn't frighten us. Then there's a Hasidic commentator, Sfat Emet, of Arye Lev of, of Gur, from the 19th century. He argues further. He takes a different sun-moon imagery that I like very much. He says that when the sun is shining in the sky, you can't see any moon or stars. Moses dominated the sky. When he's in charge, he's in charge. But, okay, there are some underlings floating around in the narratives that you might figure out exist. They really just don't matter, right? It's all about Moses and the people. Joshua, when the moon is out, the stars can shine. Joshua's leadership from the get-go always involves everybody. There are elders, there are priests, there are all kinds of other people who are actively involved in Joshua's leadership. Joshua is always number one, and everybody understands that he's number one. But Joshua leads while letting other stars shine too. And that's another secret to his success. I think that this sun-moon thing is the key to it all. Part one is that Joshua is much more accessible. People understand. He still reflects Moses' teachings, but we can talk to this person. He understands us. And it all goes back to the spies. They remember, hey, he was just as afraid as the other ten guys. He didn't speak up. He understood what we were feeling. Kalev did not. Moshe did not. Right? But Joshua did. Joshua was just as afraid. He finally came around. He stood up for the truth. We appreciate that about him. We're glad that he stands up for the truth. We want our leader to do that. But he also was afraid. And this brings us to the one crisis with Achan, the one sin that happened. What happens is, again, in chapter 6, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, the Israelites defeat the city, and Joshua proclaims that nobody's allowed to plunder that city. It's what's called Cherem. Cherem means it's taboo, nobody's allowed to take any of it, it's sacred, it belongs to God, and you don't want to invade God's turf. It's a very bad idea. Unfortunately, this one guy named Achan does. 
and nobody else knows about it, but it's enough to invoke, incur divine wrath. And in the next battle against the eye, the Israelites suffered defeat. 36 Israelites who don't know what's going on lost, and the Israelites retreat, and they are utterly demoralized. Because, hey, wait a second. You know, walls come tumbling down. You feel, all right, God is with us. We got this game in the bag, right? But all of a sudden, we lost. Now our record is one and one. Uh Uh-oh. If God's record is one and one, how do we know that we're going to succeed? Maybe this is the end. They panic. But they don't complain to Joshua. If, if I had to complain somewhere, if I were a person there, that's the moment, right? Everybody should be at Joshua's neck saying, Joshua, what is going on here? We lost. We're totally demoralized. Let's go back to Egypt, or at least let's go back to the desert. Let's get out of here. We can't fight these guys. They're stronger than we, and we just lost. But they don't do that. And I think the reason why they don't need to do that is because Joshua prays in source 21. Joshua goes to God, and he says... Ah, Lord God, cried Joshua, why did you lead this people across the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to be destroyed by them? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. Well, what does he sound like over here? He sounds like everybody. He's every man's leader. Joshua is just as afraid as everybody else. He doesn't understand what's going on here. He says, God, why, if we're going to lose, let's go back across the Jordan, hang out, and eat more man. That worked. You know, we did it for 40 years. We were, some of us were getting tired of it. But that's better than getting killed in battle. Oh, Lord, what can I say after Israel has turned tail before its enemies? When the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land hear of this, they will turn upon us and wipe out our very name from the earth. And what will you do about your great name? Who does Joshua sound like? Sounds like Moses time and again in the desert. In three verses, Joshua is able to sound like the rebellious, fearful people, and he's able to sound like Moses. Because he's both. And I think these three verses are exactly why the people don't need to ever complain. They understand, our man is standing before God, he'll represent us properly. There was such a gap between the faith of Moses and the faith of his people, he simply didn't understand what their problem was. Right? When they complain for water, food, meat, you name it, it says, like, what's your problem? God is on our side. It'll be fine, right? You're worried about walled cities and giants? So what? We have God. They don't. We'll win. He didn't even understand where they were coming from. Joshua, not only did he understand intellectually, he felt their fear as much as they did. And you hear it in these three verses loud and clear. In these three verses, Joshua is a perfect bridge between the world of Moses and the world of the people. And I think that this was the key to it all. His being the moon is actually what made him such a great leader. The Talmud says this very dramatically, not about Joshua, but about Moses in source number 22. Rabbi Hanina further said, everything is in the hand of heaven, except the fear of heaven. As it says, and this is in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to the people. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God demand of you? Only this to revere You know, Moses says this very matter-of-factly. Hey, guys, what's the big deal? All you have to do is fear God and keep all the mitzvot and be perfect all the time. That's easy. And and, And so this raises rabbinic eyebrows. Like, wait a second. That's hard work, right? It's a wonderful and noble goal and everything, but it's hard work. So the Talmud asks, is the fear of heaven such a little thing? Are you kidding me? How can he make it such a little, oh, God is so easy. All he makes you do is this. Is the fear of heaven such a little thing? And they answer, this, bless the sages. I mean, they're, they're, it's incredible how they just penetrate to the heart of it all. Yes, for Moses, it was a small thing, as Rabbi Hanina said, to illustrate by a parable. If a man is asked for a big article and he has it, it seems like a small article to him. If he is asked for a small article and he does not possess it, it seems like a big article to him. It's great psychology. But it's, this is Moses' problem. His problem is that he was literally too great for his people. That's what this Talmudic passage is saying. His fear of heaven was so, it was, his fear of heaven was like us breathing. It was so absolute and so natural and so part of who he was, he couldn't imagine that somebody else didn't have that. And whenever the people didn't have it, he went nuts on them. He said, what's wrong with you? He, he did, it was so obvious to him that God was there he didn't imagine that somebody else might not feel God there or that might not feel God helping. When crisis came to Joshua, Joshua was just as worried as everybody else and still came around to be the, the disciple of 
Moses. I think that this passage really encapsulates what I've been trying to say the entire time, namely that Moses was the son. He was a much, much, much greater person, much, much, much greater prophet. In many ways, he was a more successful and effective leader also. But in this regard, he was not. Joshua was the more effective leader precisely because he was lesser. He is the ideal bridge of somebody who was able to reflect Moshe's sunlight. And he was able to bring that to the people in a way that was utterly non-threatening because they all knew he's one of us too. He belongs to Moses and he belongs to the people. So I think that that's one of the most important themes in the book of Joshua, and that's why I brought it up tonight. Next week, God willing, we're going to hit on some of the other major themes. Other major themes, I just want to make sure. I've been doing this completely without notes, which makes me happy, but I want to make sure that I didn't miss anything dramatic. No, nailed it. Good. So on that happy note, yeah, Kenny? I would just be curious if we thought that Yoshua's leadership style could have taken Israel out of Mitzrayim and brought it through the desert. <coughs> Yoshua had a different type of leadership style that probably was more apt to bringing them into the land and then settling the land. I would agree with that. I mean, one... The word gross has the wrong connotation, but a gross distinction between them in the sense of unrefined, right, is that Moses belongs as the leader in a supernatural realm, and Joshua is a much more suitable leader for a more natural realm, where they're going to live in a real land and have a real army. So there's no question, and that, that we already see the very first time we meet him in the battle against Amalek where Joshua is the military general and Moses is up there on the top of the mountain clearly representing the metaphysical side of the equation. So I think that there's a lot of merit to that argument as an additional dimension to why Joshua is a more suitable leader for the land. But I think on top of that, just uh, today was all about the, the complaining. I think that Joshua is able to lead the nation to nearly 100% righteousness. Again, one man, one sin. That is a good generation, right? And, and so I think part of his success was the people... The, the people really responded to him as a proper leader, yeah. I think um, the whole sin of the because you could argue that Moses set, set them up to fail and Moses was the one who told them to go look to see whether the cities were strong or not strong and all the things he asked them to look for. Then how could he fault them when they came back and reported? But Moses basically saw the world from God's eyes and could not fathom that anyone would see it today. Yeah. No, it's a fabulous way of depicting. Okay, a couple more things, and we'll wind it up. Yeah. How does Moses' humility? I mean, I, I, I think part of it might be that, like, would it be that everybody was a prophet because then he does, does not do uh, do the work, but yeah, he does not do the work of rebuking the people, leading the people because they're all in the connection of godliness. Moses' humility is at least generally presented. That might not be the correct presentation. John Carter that that didn't so highly of himself. But here, uh, that the humility at the same time he's completely out of touch with uh, with the nation. Right. So I, I, I mean, I guess it depends how you define humility here, right? To me, at least, Moses simply understands exactly where he stands in the overall positioning of the world, right? <laughs> and Joshua, and for that matter, all other human beings ever are less in tune with that reality, right, to varying degrees. So, that's, so I don't think that that specifically impedes on his leadership or, or makes him a better leader for that matter. It's, a, it's just a different trait. It's a very good trait to have. In fact, it's an idealized trait for Moses, being the most humble and, as a result, the greatest prophet. Yeah. Does Moses, Moshe have to change over into this? Is his early life different than this? When he, uh, you know, picks someone else, they're not going to listen to me, uh... Etc. It doesn't seem to be God intoxicated. Well, right, and some and some argue that point that this is look, you know, this is his no, first no, encounter, right? So where, where, where do you think that happened? That he's sort of I'm not. Changed. I'm not sure. Uh, your question is quite valid. I, I don't have a clear thesis of where I th- where you see the you know the monumental milestones of Moses' growth. But it's fair to argue what you're arguing that he didn't start at the pinnacle of prophecy the very first time he was at the burning bush, rather it's something that developed with time. When exactly he crossed that threshold of being the one and only, I don't know. Right? Maybe it was the giving of the Torah, maybe before he already had that, I don't know. Be that as it may. Okay, last thing, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. I'm impressed by the anthropomorphism of God, because it seems like the communication channel is the auditory one, and I don't know if he has an indwelling electronic device, but he's goal here is to impel 
And the intimacy of the voice is a remarkable anthropomorphic feature of a non-anthropomorphic being. Absolutely. It's, it's hardly I'm, just the voice. I'm sort of confused by all Oh, ne- never be fooled. And with this, we'll close. God in the Bible is always cast as a character. He's not written as the God of the philosophers, right? He's got plenty of emotions. He's got plenty of body parts. He speaks as a person. He's a character. He, you know, that, that's exactly how God wishes to convey himself in biblical language. So Rambams of the world remind us that's not the objective reality, right? That God is a lot more and a lot different from the way he's depicted, but we would never understand God <laughs> unless we were as smart as Rambam, which many of us are not. If, if the whole Torah was written in the language of the theologians and philosophers, it has to be written with God as a character. And then the counter-argument of that is Rav Shimshon Raphael Hirsch in 19th century Germany who says, fine, Rambam is right, God isn't just a person, right? However, if we keep on saying, oh, this isn't the way that it is, this isn't the way that it is, we lose sight of why the Torah is written the way that it is, namely, that God wants us to relate to him. And God can't do that if he writes the objective theological reality, God is conveyed as a character, and that creates the intimate relationship that, we, that God and we should want to have. On that happy note, first of all, thank you for coming. Second of all, if you have not...